Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, with this discipleship series. And we have finished Old Testament survey, and we are on to part two of the intertestamental period. Now, I'll be honest, I used to think that these were silent years, and I had no idea the significance of what happened on the world stage to literally set the stage for the arrival of Jesus. And so part of what we're going to talk about today is some of those things that kind of happened, and we're going to continue where we left off. And so we ended last week's podcast with a discussion of Alexander the Great coming in, um, Hellenistic thought sweeping through the area and kind of taking over. Um, We talked about how um, the... Old Testament Hebrew uh, texts were all translated into the Greek Septuagint. And and the one thing I do want to point out that I missed last week is just kind of the understanding that when Ezra came back and he found the copy of the Old Testament scriptures, there was this uh, revival of uh, reading God's word and teaching the word of God to the people. And so you had the synagogue spring, uh, spring up all over the place, like we had talked about, but there was also a lot of, um, focus on preserving God's word. And so there was a lot of scribes who were, um, copying manu I want to call them manuscripts, but the scrolls. And so they were making more copies. And so there was a lot of that going on. And so there was this big focus to preserve God's word. Okay. So I want to kind of say that because by the time we get to 250 BC and the Septuagint is produced in Alexandria, um, there would have been a kind of, a. uh, the Jewish um, rabbis and and um, priests and that kind of thing, one of the things that they would have been devoting their lives to was um, accurately copying the word of God to keep it preserved. Um, and so that would have already been in place. And what I want you guys to understand is that when we get to the context of what Alexandria was, it was um, at the time in the known world it would have been the uh, most elite place to go for learning, for preserving old old texts of antiquity. So the old the scriptures that Jesus affirms the authority and the inspiration and the the divine um, oh what word do I want the divine um, authorship of is literally what would have been translated out of Hebrew into the Greek, Koine Greek, called the Septuagint. And it came out of um, this place of, for the known world at the time, it was the number one spot for academic preservation of scriptures um, and books of antiquity. And so God didn't, you know, there's no second rate with the Lord. When it comes to preserving, he's going to do it right because it's his word and he will protect it. Um, And so I, you know, I, I, like sitting there and kind of thinking through all of this and just realizing that God moves in very specific ways. He doesn't waste anything. And so those Jews that were still um, Jews of the diaspora, literally in Alexandria, are, are, are literally used by God to preserve his scripture and to put it into the most accessible language of the day. Um, and so you got to just love how God moves in the hearts of man to preserve his word and to keep it accessible to the most amount of people. 
Um, any case, all right, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. I've, I've talked in the last one at the very end about how Alexander the Great's kingdom is divided in two by two major generals. Um, you have Ptolemy who takes over Egypt, and then you have the Seleucid kingdom that comes out of the general that goes to the north, and Israel being caught in between. Uh, and they bounce back and forth under the control of each of these groups, back and forth, back and forth. And then we have a guy coming on the scenes out of um, Greece, and his name is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and I hope I've said that right, not butchered it. And he goes basically on a raid throughout to conquer, you know, and to keep everybody in line. And so if you can kind of think of it this way, he is, he swings in from the north and um, Israel is almost like if you're looking at the back of your right hand, Israel is kind of about where your um, pointer finger and your thumb meet together. And so the lay of the, the sea at that point kind of looks a little bit like the area in between your thumb if you stretch it out. Um, and so he comes down from the top of the pointer finger area, like down in and around, and he's on his way to Egypt. And he is going to conquer as he goes. And he gets through Israel, and the first time he passes through Israel, he doesn't really do a whole lot of damage. Um, but as he gets down further, literally ships from his home country intercept him right before he's about to get to Egypt. And he is told, listen, if you go after Egypt, we're coming after you. <laughs> and so he is told to get home. Well, he doesn't board the ships. He goes back the way he came. And so he goes back up through the nation of Israel, and at this point, he has lost face and he's mad. Um, and so this is all prophesied in the book of Daniel, which is really interesting. If you want to look this up, this is Daniel 10 and 11. But he goes back up through the nation of Israel and he's mad. Um, and so I'm going to actually read you a couple of passages out of that um, and kind of show you what Daniel actually says about this. Okay, so remember I told you the ships um, met him and told him he's not to go down into Egypt? That's in actually verse 30. For ships of Kittim, and, and they literally were from Kittim, will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. What's the Holy Covenant? It's God's covenant with his people. So he gets enraged at the Jewish people on his way back through. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He literally comes in and he befriends the Jews that betray their people and their God. There was a whole sect of Jews that tried to make friends with him. Um, forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with regular sacrifice. They will set up abominations of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to the godless, those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Um, and so, like, literally what happens here is so interesting. So, um, okay, so he comes back up through and he literally defies the, defiles the temple. He walks in, he makes a statue of Zeus, um, he sacrifices a pig on the altar. I mean, he just... It just he stops the sacrifices for the Jews, everything. Um, and so he comes in and just desecrates. Well, what happens is a rural high priest in the area has five sons and he he is faithful to the Lord and he rises up with his five sons and literally starts a revolt. And now his name is Matthias um and 
literally his first and oldest born son is named Judas and he is a brilliant military leader. And he is so brilliant that pretty soon he is given the nickname the Hammer, which is Maccabee. And so his followers are literally called the Maccabees. Um, And so within three years, he takes back Jerusalem and he manages to purify the temple and restart all of the Jewish worship system. Now, there is actually a legend that goes along with this that they lit a menorah um, but didn't have enough of the dedicated oil from the, the past temple to preserve, you know, for it to, to last the entire time that they needed it to. Um, and for whatever reason, it lasted and it didn't run out. Um, and so this is actually known as Hanukkah. Um, and in the New Testament, there is actually a reference to Jesus celebrating Hanukkah. Um, the Festival of Lights is what it's it was called back in Jesus's day. Um, and so that all happens in 164 BC. But that is from uh, the faithful rising up. Um, and I love how the, the scripture verse says here, in Daniel 11.32, it says, um, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And isn't that just such a timely word for us today? You know, that um, if you know the Lord, when the time comes, You'll stand up and you'll take action whenever you need to. But it's all about whether or not you know the Lord. Um, And so in any case, I just thought that was such a cool um, story with the Maccabees. And it's something that I honestly hadn't understood the significance of the Maccabees at all. Um, My only familiarity before really researching this was that I knew there were two books, First and Second Maccabees, that were no longer included in the canon, but were a part of the Catholic Bible. Um... And actually, those two books were part of the Apocrypha writings that were removed about the time of Martin Luther uh, with the 95 Theses and the the Reformation that happened. They were removed from the Bible at that point. Up until that point, they were included. And so when you get the Catholic Bible, which is where Martin Luther rebels against the Catholic Church at that time, then you get the differences in the scriptures up to that point. After Hanukkah, what you have set up is literally the Hasmonean period. Um, And so at this point, you have, um, in John chapter 4, you see the Samaritan woman. Okay, and so I want to give you a little bit of context for her because this is where we see the Samaritans. This is northern, north of Jerusalem. This would have been in um, that northern kingdom in the lower part area a little bit. Um, it is the Samaritans. And, and basically what you have is you have this pocket of people that were... They weren't pure Jewish. They had intermarried with other areas. And in this particular area, they had married in with the Seleucids. And so they were called the Samaritans. And there was some battling with the Druze um, going on at this point in time, where um, back and forth and back and forth. And so the Samaritans decided they were going to build another temple. (laughs) Just be done with it. So they go to the mountain, Mount Gerizim, um, up at Shechem, and they build themselves another temple because they weren't welcomed in Jerusalem. And so that temple um, is eventually destroyed, which causes a lot of hard feelings between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so there is a hundred years right in through here of, um, 
of just corruption that takes over because the the Maccabees take control of Jerusalem and temple worship and everything. But over time, that ruling system becomes corrupt and controlling um, with priests and kings and those kinds of things. And so that plays out all the way into about 63 BC where we have Rome come on the scene. And we have a guy named Pompey. Um, And he comes up from Egypt, and he takes Jerusalem literally without a fight. Uh, They are so ready to be free. And so he literally uh, sits down and basically has conversations with the Jews, but he hears about the Holy of Holies and about the temple, and he's curious. And so he walks himself into the Holy of Holies, and literally the Jews never forgive him for it. Um, Because basically what he does in doing that is he desecrates their temple. Um, And so you have him taking over at that point, and he's very much seen as kind of a rescuer from all of the unrest and the the stuff going on at the time. Uh, All right, so that sets the scene for Herod the Great being appointed over Israel. Um, And he is actually, uh, he's appointed at about 40 B.C. or so. Um, and so he is an Edomite descent. Now, if you understand what that means, that's Esau. So he is the son that is not of the promise. He was very Greek. He was very Romanized. He um, was a fake Jew, like a pseudo Jew is kind of a good term for him. But he establishes himself as king. I mean, he literally launches like a campaign to put himself in office, so to speak. Um, And one of the things he does to try to raise his popularity among the Jews, because you got to remember, the Jews know that they are supposed to have a Jew as their king. (laughs) They are not supposed to have another outside of the covenant over them as a king. And so anybody who is not of the line of David and have that Davidic heritage is not to be on the throne because they know the Old Testament prophecies. So Herod's definitely trying to do his best to become their king, even though he doesn't have that pedigree in that background that makes him qualified to be king. Okay, so one of the things he does to raise his popularity is that he begins to expand the temple. And he wants to rebuild it, but they will not let him do it because they don't want to be without a temple for a period of time. And so he literally works with them to tear down a part of the temple and rebuild. And so literally it's a long drawn out process because they would only allow priests to do the construction and there's all this kind of stuff. Um, But he makes it lavish. So a lot of what you will see is that it's Herod's temple when we get to the Gospels. And so that second temple has literally been massively overhauled by Herod in order to win Jewish favor, okay? Um, And so he makes this elaborate portical um, column-lined entrance to his house straight into the Temple Mount. Um, Yeah, and so this is is like hugely elaborately done, okay? Um, But he is the one who actually sends out the order Um, to kill boys two years and old and down. And this is coming towards the end of his life where, you know, he is starting to get very paranoid and insecure 
about his position and everything. And he actually ends up killing sons and um, military leaders and, and a lot of people under his throne who he thinks might become threats. Um, and so, you know, of course, in this time, we have the Magi coming into town and we have their prophecies of, of this king that's been born to the Jews and all of the things in the stars that have happened. And that connected with Old Testament prophecy. And one of the things I want to tell you guys is that literally in Daniel, Daniel has a prophecy of 70 weeks. And there's a very specific timeline that is given in Daniel that if you do the math, it actually um, it actually goes to the year that Jesus was crucified. And it's a prophecy about the Messiah being cut off. Um, and so in that, it, literally, that specific of a time frame, so they actually knew the Messiah was coming, and they had very specific prophecies that would have told them. And so, of course, all of that would make this pseudo-king of Israel very nervous because one of the things that's prophesied about the Messiah is that God's going to grant him an internal kingdom that never ends. Um, and so, of course, you get Herod and you get all of the angst that's building around the birth of Christ. You have the the census where everybody has to go back to their hometown and, you know, where everybody's lineage is, is traced and um, everybody's counted and where all of these little boys under the age of two are um, then killed. Um, and so anyway, you can kind of feel it, but um, he shot, he dies shortly thereafter. But the Gospels tell us that one of the things that Joseph does is he has a dream where God tells him flee to Egypt. And so literally what happens is for several years, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus down to Egypt and they live in Egypt. Um, and so that's part of the prophecy where God says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Um, and so you have that happening right at this time period with Herod the Great. Um, his son comes, takes over from um, 4 BC to about 6 AD, uh, and he does such a bad job that people go back to the Roman Senate um, and complain, and the Roman Senate, Roman Senate actually removes him from power, and he's exiled. Um, the next person that takes over is Herod Antipas, and he takes over from 4 BC to about 39 AD. Um, and the thing I want you to understand is that um, he builds the the city of Tiberias for you know the um, the Roman bestie that he has. Um, Anyway, he's the one that has John the Baptist beheaded, um, and Herod is at the trial of Jesus, is also this guy right here. And so for most of the New Testament uh, Gospels, this is the, um, the Herod that they're talking about. When we get to, to Acts 12, we are on another Herod, which is Herod Agrippa I, and he is in power from about 37 to 44 um, AD. And so remember, we've now flipped over, and so now we're counting up. <laughs> that always gets me. So 
I want to make sure I mention that. But in Acts 12, we see Herod Agrippa I killing James, and he tries to kill Peter, but there's a miraculous rescue that happens. Um, And so if you want some more of that history, that's in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa II is about 50 AD, and Paul actually appears before him and testifies. Um, So that's kind of a breakdown of the history of rulers and such um, from that point. Now, I I know that in the teaser episode, I told you we were going to talk about how we got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I definitely want to go back and tie this in a little bit. Um, By about the time of the Maccabees, you had a division in the high priest. And you had a group that were very attracted to the Greek principles called Hellenism. And so you had a group that were very became very influenced by Hellenistic thought. And then you had another group that went the opposite direction and became very devout in their faith and very devoted. Um, and so you had kind of that dichotomy splitting off at that point. Um, And then you get down to that Hasmonean period, um, Hasmonean, whatever, with the Samaritans doing what they did and all of that. And and basically what happens at that point um, is there is um, some religious differences that kind of develop within Judaism. And so you have some sects. Uh, or some groups that form. And and this is the time where you have the Sadducees kind of identifying themselves in the Pharisees. And then you actually have a third group called the Essenes. Um, and so these are actually uh, in the New Testament. These are ones that you see. And there's kind of a power struggle within the Hasmonee family. Roman forces that gained control of Syria um, intervene. But under Pompey, they occupy Jerusalem uh, in 63 B.C. So one of the things I want you to understand is that Jesus comes into the world at a scene where the Romans are overseeing, but even within Judaism, there's this war going on. Um, and by the time we get to Jesus, there there literally is almost like a high priest mafia setup happening where... Um, There's assassinations that are happening. There's all kinds of stuff that's kind of happening underneath the scenes and behind. But there literally is a high priest uh, family that has taken over um, basically ruling Judaism at that point. And so, um, you know, when we get into the story of Jesus, uh, there literally is a whole series of, uh, basically, it's it's like a godfather family, the high priest sect is. Um, and so to understand kind of what's at play in Jesus's day, you have the tensions that are rising. You've had all kinds of zealots that have arisen, even in Judaism, uh, to try to launch a takeover or launch different things. And so um, along the way, there's been a lot of rebels, and the the high priests that are in control have done a lot of things to take out all of those rabble, um, and the Roman government has kind of intervened as well. Okay, so let's go back to like this first Herod, because um, remember how I said that his, that first son that takes over Herod Antipas, um, no, the one above him, um, Herod Archelaus, he is such a flop Uh, as a ruler, that there is so much turmoil that happens under him that they literally go back to that Roman Senate and have him removed. Um, But one of the things that I want to kind of point out in that period of time 
one of the things that happens during that period of time is that Rome puts procurates or basically like governors in place um, over the Jewish people. And that really, um, the Jewish people really struggle with that. And so you have the high priest um, who's ever in power kind of asserting his dominance, but then you have Rome that's kind of added some extra oversight. And then you have like the Herods that are in a position of power. So you have this uh, this hot mess, <laughs> so to speak, of just domains overlapping and power and somebody trumping somebody else all the time. And, and so it truly is a very tumultuous time um, in this season. Uh And so, you know, you have a revolt that happens um, with a lot of uh, suffering and bloodshed. Um, That's literally after the time of Christ. So you can just feel that it's boiled and boiled and boiled. And so that 70 A.D., is when Rome comes in and destroys the temple. Now, it's Herod's temple, remember? Um, And it's the one that Jesus did all of the gospel accounts in, right? Um, And so literally at 70 AD, we've just had this boiling of this political hot pot, so to speak. Um, And so it literally... um, hits this all-time high, and a remnant of these zealots um, literally take refuge on a rocky fortress known as Masada near the Dead Sea in about 73 AD. Um, Masada falls and the revolt ends, but you need to understand that that right there is 73 BC. Um, And so what you have happening at that point is um, you have a lot of the gospels being written right about this period of time because a lot of those firsthand accounts of Christ um, those people are are dying. Um, the Jews in Jerusalem have scattered to the nations surrounding, and they've scattered with news of the gospel of Jesus, of the Messiah, and how he died, and he fulfilled the Old Testament covenant, and there's a new covenant in his blood. And so literally at this point, um, the area has just exploded, so to speak, and Jews have just gone all over the place. Um, And what you need to remember is at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to the Jews, but it is nine years later when the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. And so predominantly these Jews are scattered around and they're sharing Christ to who first? They're sharing to the Jew first by going into all of these synagogues that were established back in Ezra's day. And they start there presenting who Jesus is. And so... You know, it's not till like Acts, it's Acts, I think, chapter 12, where um, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. And then from that point, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, and so I think based on what we've just talked about, you understand what it means with the Greek, because the known world at the time surrounding Jerusalem was influenced by Greek thought. They were Greek speakers. Um, and so even though the Romans had come in and were governing, um, everything was Hellenistically influence so heavily and they spoke Koine Greek. Um, And so I think that's a good context for the Gospels. And so heading into those Gospel accounts, this is going to be your episode to kind of understand everything at play and in the background. Um, Okay, so 
I think I'm going to stop. Go ahead and stop there for, for this week's podcast. And we will pick up with the gospel accounts. Um, but I think before we jump into those, I am actually going to do a standalone podcast or two on how we do a quiet time, how we should be approaching God's word, and really some tips to get the most out of our time with the Lord. So I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from Modern Farmhouse to transitional design. Then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed.